0: the Savior of the world, to die for sinners such as us, that we might have eternal life in him, and that we may know we have this eternal life. Father, I praise you, Lord, for your continued faithfulness toward us as we sing about it this morning. Lord, help us to to have grateful hearts for your constant provision, for every need in our life. The needs of this present hour, the needs of tomorrow, the years that are to come. And Lord, we know you've provided for our eternal, our eternal need. The the place that you have reserved in heaven for us. We long to see you, Lord. Lord. The Bible says, Lord, that if we have this desire in our heart, this certainty of seeing you, that you, you, we will purify our lives. So, Father, I pray by the power of your Spirit that we will surrender ourselves in our entirety to you so that you can use us to your honor and glory. Bless now the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So prior to our celebration of the Lord's Supper, I want to complete the study of Romans chapter 14. We have been taking a very long, slow walk through the book of Romans, and I I appreciate the patience that you have extended to me as I've really tried to do this book line by line, precept by precept, and sometimes word by word. So I know that gets a little tedious, but... uh, I think it's profitable, right? And if you miss anything, you can go back and listen to it online. And I'm thankful that we're, we have our sermons online. And if you didn't know it, they could be accessed at Sermon Audio. It's live streamed if you're not here. But then the recording is up for you to listen to later if you so desire. The Romans chapter 14 has to do with the proper exercise of what we call Christian liberty the proper exercise by the mature Christian who understands his liberties in Christ without making liberty a license to sin, how does he, how does he carry out his liberties in light of a, a weaker brother or sister in Christ who, who may not understand things as well as he does? So this is the seventh message pertaining to this matter, just in Romans 14. Verses 19 through 22 address the mature believer in Christ. And then verse 23, the weaker brother. So let's pick up in verse 19, where Paul says, Let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Now remember the context the weak thought that he could only eat vegetables he, he couldn't eat certain meats he was still under the old mosaic code whereas the strong realized that he had the liberty to eat all things all things indeed are pure and paul's talking about they're in their essence there is no such thing as unclean food all things are pure in their essence they're not going to hurt hurt you spiritually no matter what you eat but is evil for the man who eats With offence, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended, or is made weak, weak in the faith. Now he's addressing the strong. Verse twenty-two: Do you have faith? Have it, have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin, and that's addressed to the weaker brother or sister in Christ. Now, when I started this chapter, I told you that it is about diet, meats, and vegetables, days, observing certain days or not observing certain days, and drink. And the drink that Paul is referring to here is wine. I spoke a lot about the diet, a little about the days, And verse 27 mentions, or verse 21 throws wine into the mix. Can a Christian drink alcoholic beverages? That's a very hotly debated matter. And I know you're going to be disappointed, but I don't have the time to get into it today because it's a subject of its own that demands more than a few passing comments. I promise you I will talk at length on this either at the conclusion of chapter 14 or probably at the conclusion of chapter chapter 16, which is the end of the book. I still have some of my own study to do on this. What I don't think is wise for any Christian to do is to make a decision on a matter like this, which can have lifelong consequences, and it often does, without very careful personal study. It's all too easy to see what your favorite Bible teacher says and follow him, and I don't encourage you to do that as far as I'm concerned. Always check me out according to the Scriptures. Or you can go to the Scripture and come to a conclusion you wanted to find by selecting the, the sources, the, the data that best confirm it and ignoring anything contrary to that. And we can do that with anything. It's called confirmation bias. Let's go to verse nineteen. So do your own study in preparation for that. Verse 19 Therefore let us pursue the things which make, and I capitalized on my notes here, peace, and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Believing that you can eat meat and really offending your a less mature believer who believes he can only eat Vegetables, or he has to abstain from certain foods, or it could be other issues. So let me address the pursue the things which make for peace command. Don't answer this question, but if I were to pose it to you, answer it in your own mind. What is the most important thing as far as pursuing peace is concerned? I put it this way the biggest ingredient in the recipe for peace is humility. Is humility. Self-centeredness. What is self-centeredness? It's me, myself, and I. That's self-centeredness. That's the natural condition of the fallen person. We're born with in, in sin. We have a sin nature. And it's It's the natural condition of the sin nature to think about me first, to put yourself in that position. Alan Redpath was a devotional writer. I like some of his books. He wrote one called The Making of a Man of God. And he said, Let a man be right with God, reconciled through the blood of the cross, humbled at the foot of Calvary, let him be broken, coming to God, guilty and hopeless and needy. And at that moment, God takes hold of him and transforms him and uses all his gifts and qualities until that man becomes a mighty influence or, or a woman as well, a woman of God. But he, he has first to come down from the ladder of pride to the foot of the cross. No one will be saved. No one will come to Christ for forgiveness until they recognize what great a sinner they are. And pride often keeps a person from recognizing their need for Jesus Christ. So, before we can pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, we must be willing to pray, my kingdom go. Right? Psalm 25.9, The humble he guides in justice. And the humble he teaches his way. You know, when you look at the political landscape, it's, it's a mess. It's always been a mess. It always will be a mess until King Jesus comes and rules and reigns upon this earth. So don't get your hopes up with any politician. But the big problem that we see with the political landscape is pride. A lack of humility. The humble he guides in justice. The humble he teaches his way. James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I believe that the secret to personal revival, revival in your home, in your life, revival in the church, is biblical humility. It's stepping down off of the ladder of pride and humbling yourself. And I want to give you an example just. I didn't intend to put this in this message because it's really not about Romans 14 per se, but as I was reading, it really struck me. The example from the life of of King Josiah, king of Judah, one of the godly kings mentioned in the Bible, and it's found in 2 Kings 34. It's also found in 2 2 Chronicles 34 and 2 Kings. But in 2 Kings 34... Three. it says in the eighth year of his reign while he was still young Josiah began to seek the God of his father David I wonder how many of you young people here today can say that of yourself the desire of my heart is to seek the Lord You'll go a long way in life if that's your desire. While he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father. And then it says in the latter part of that verse, 2 Chronicles 34b, In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images. And you know what that tells me? Seeking God leads to positive actions. When you really seek after God, you realize there's some things in your life that have got to go. They have to be torn down. And then in verse 8, chapter 34... So we go from the 8th year to the 12th year to the 18th year of this man's life. In the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Johas, the re- recorder to repair the house of the Lord his God. Notice the steps First, he sought the Lord God. Second thing, he got rid of the things in his life that he needed to get rid of as far as the land was concerned, Israel. And then it says, he began to repair the house of the Lord. You have to tear down and get rid of things before you can build up your life. You have to stand on the right firm foundation in Jesus Christ. But some things have to go. And then you can build something that will bring glory to God. And it didn't end there. It says in verse 14 that when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. So you have to seek God. You have to tear down things in your life and get rid of them. You need to build up and then you need to return to God's word as the foundation for the rest of your life. And then it says that when Shaphan the scribe told the king saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. (laughs) Don't you love that? Look brothers and sisters, you have a book. You're holding it on your lap. God has given you a book. He's given you a book. It's His book. He didn't give it to you to hide it away on your shelf. He gave it to you to read and to absorb so that the teachings in this book will change your life. For good, The Lord, the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Then Shapon the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shapon read it before the king. The book has to be read, brothers and sisters. Thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law when he read that book, that he tore his clothes and he inquired of Huldah, the prophetess in Jerusalem. Humility. Repentance. What will bring humility and repentance into your life? The book that God has given you and me. And there's no other book that will do it. There's nothing that man has ever written that can do it. Only the book. The book that God has given. Well, when you read the story further on, Huldah, who was a prophetess at that time, in verse 23 of Second Chronicles 34, she pronounced judgment on Judah. Israel has divided into two kingdoms, the north and the south. The north had, fa- had fallen in 722 B.C. to the Assyrians. But Judah would fall also in 586 because they repeated many of the same sins. And Huldah the prophetess told Josiah that he would die. He would die in peace. Verse 28. His death would be would be peaceful. And that doesn't mean that, that you know, he's just going to sleep the sleep of death, fall asleep, whatever it was, because he actually died because he started a fight with Pharaoh Nietzsche. He didn't start it but jumped into it. He, he jumped into a battle with Pharaoh Nietzsche, uh, uh, Pharaoh Nietzsche of Egypt that he never should have done. You know, it doesn't pay to get involved in somebody else's skirmishes, right? Right? We learn that too often. So his life did not end well, but J. Barton Payne, in his commentary on First and Second Chronicles in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, writes about the prophecy of Hulda. Because some people say, "Well, then she had to be a false prophetess because she said he would die in peace, and the reality is he died in battle." Josiah was told this. He was promised that his eyes would not see all the disaster that would come upon Judah. Not that he would would have a very peaceful death. Postponements of divine wrath had been granted previously to King Hezekiah in chapter 32. King Ahab of Israel, who was, by the way, a wicked man who did repent. In 1 Kings 21, when they too displayed humility and repentance, Josiah would be buried in peace which meant that he would be buried before the disastrous fall of Judah that constituted the whole point at issue there. The king would be buried in honor, even though he died in battle. But his eyes would not see the disaster that would come upon Jerusalem. God spared him from that. The church father Jerome notes that this, that in Scripture, people are often called righteous, not because they are faultless, because their faults are eclipsed by, by their virtues. And I want to tell you this morning that Josiah's chief virtue was humility, humility. Verse 26, Second Chronicles: 34. As for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender. I have to stop right there. Do you have a tender heart toward the things of God? Or is your heart, are you indifferent? Or even worse, is your heart getting hard to the things of God and the word of God? Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants and you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. God resists the proud, but he what? He gives grace to the humble. He brings down the proud, but he exalts the humble. And if we want God to hear us and to bless our lives, our families, our church, we must humble ourselves. And as far as the church is concerned, it's the necessary step toward peace, just as it is in your home. If you're constantly at war with somebody, you have to humble yourself. It's the first ingredient in the recipe for peace, wherever it is to be found. So it goes on in Romans 14, 19, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify, that word means to build up one another. That's that's what we are to do. That's the effect that we are to have one upon another. We're not to put somebody down. We're not to fault find. Doesn't mean we, can, we ignore sin because if you see your brother overtaken in a fault, the Bible says you who are a spiritual, go to him. But not with the purpose of beating him up, putting him down, but building him up. Building him up. And then he says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. That tells me something. The work of God must be protected. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food in this instance. Listen. God called me to be a shepherd. And my, my primary responsibility in addition to preaching and teaching the word of God is to protect this church is to protect you, to protect the peace of this church, to protect the unity of this church. I take that very serious, and so do the other elders, because that's a shared responsibility. We must, we must be certain, as we can, that no one will destroy the work of God here in this place. Every Christian, whether strong or weak, is an individual work of God. Did you ever see yourself as that? You're a work of God. You know. You you hear some people criticize that oh, man, they're really a piece. They're really quite a work, you know, in a negative sense. But I want to tell you this you're a new creation. When you got saved, you became a new creation. Second Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. A new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new or, or really are in the process of becoming new because when you come to Christ and you repent of your sins and you trust Christ as your Savior, you are saved and you have eternal life, but you're not yet sanctified. That process is just beginning. In the Sunday school class, I told people, remember it this way, right? You're saved from the penalty of sin. The moment you receive Christ as Savior. You're being saved from the power of sin over your life. That's sanctification. And then one day, one glorious day, you will be saved from the very presence of sin. So if somebody asks you if you're saved, I told them you say this, yes, I've been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. I've been saved from the penalty of sin, I'm being saved from the power of sin and i will be saved from the very presence of sin and they'll look at you and go what is that all about and then you'll you'll have about two or three hours to tell them so we're a work in progress though here's what paul says philippians 1 3 i thank my god upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine making requests for you with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now here's what he said being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. God's not finished with me yet, so please be patient with me. And God is not finished with you yet, so I have to be patient with you. God's not finished with your husband. God's not finished with your wife. God's not finished with your children, so please be patient with them. Some often even, they're not even saved yet. You gotta lead them to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation and then be patient with them while they grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Ephesians two nine. for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. Poema, poem. We're his creation. Created in Christ Jesus for God for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hope you notice the order. We are not saved by works, but we're saved to do good works. We're new creation. We're new. So every Christian individually is an individual work of God. And secondly, the church collectively is also a work of God. Romans 12.5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. One body. 1 Corinthians 12.12. For as the body is one, that's the church, the local church, and as many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Emphasis on oneness, unity, right? Togetherness. So, since you are a part of the body of Christ and the local church, what part are you playing in the body? Are you contributing positively? Is your contribution a negative one? Hopefully not. Maybe it's neither, which means you come and go without much or any significance in the lives of other believers that can be seen. Now, I do realize that Christians can contribute in ways we don't see. Prayer is one of them, giving is another. But I think that service to God in a local community of believers, because God has gifted each and every believers, it should be visible. It may take some time to get there. But let me ask you this question. How much time? How much time do you need before you can plug in somewhere and help somebody or come alongside somebody and build them up in the faith? How much time? Hebrews 10.24 says, Let's, let us consider one another in order to stir up. That means to fan the flames Of love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This is why we come together to stir up one another to love and good works. To exhort one another, encourage, comfort one another, build up one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching, brothers and sisters, we need one another more than ever in the evil day in which we live. There are demonic forces at work everywhere. As never before. Ripping apart homes. Ripping apart the country, ripping apart every institution that that we know. There's evil forces at work. So we must stand together as one. All the more as we see the day of Christ approaching in this evil day. Revelation 12, 12 says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath because he knows that he has a short life. I remember the story of a missionary who was on a foreign field and somebody came to him for help. And, 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 they, and he says, what's the problem? And they were, there's a big snake in my house. And he went into this house, whatever it looked like, I don't know. But it was a big, big snake. Probably some type of a python or constrictor or whatever it was. And this man went over there and he, with his 22 pistol. And and or rifle, and he went into that house, and he saw that snake, and he put one one bullet into the head of that snake, and then he closed the door, and the and the and the snake destroyed the house because it knew it had but a short time. It was dying. Satan knows he has but a short time, so don't be don't be alarmed when you turn on the news and you go, "Whoa, did you hear that?" Do you know what they're doing now? Satan knows he has but a short time. Church unity requires that we do not hinder the spiritual growth of those who are less mature in the faith. Verse 21, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Now, do anything here is all-encompassing. If your action, whatever it is, is going to hurt someone, think before you do it. And don't do it. It's as simple as that. If you want to give someone a piece of your mind, don't. If you want to show someone how much you know, don't. If you want to tell them where they're wrong. Don't, unless it's to build them up. Now, the issues of liberty will vary among believers. We don't argue over meats and vegetables. Well, maybe we do. But as far as the spiritual application goes, we shouldn't. That doesn't matter. So the issues are going to vary, but the basic principle remains the same. It's not a matter of right and wrong. Who's right and who's wrong? Is what Paul is saying here. It's not a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of love. I could be right. Maybe, maybe I am right in a dispute I have with my wife. Or with one of you. But it doesn't matter if I'm right. If I'm not loving. If I'm not showing love. You should never embolden a Christian to do anything against his conscience by your actions. Don't offend them. Then in verse 22, Paul says, don't showcase your liberty. Don't showcase your liberty. So again, in the historical context... There were those young believers who had come out of the Mosaic system. They believed they couldn't do certain things. There were mature Christians who understood the, that that law that was all done away with. The law was done away with in terms of those legal ceremonial types of things that they were obligated to under the Mosaic covenant. But the younger Christians didn't have that understanding yet. So here's what Paul says. Do you have faith? And I'll explain that in a minute. Have it to yourself before God. Blessed is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. That's addressed to the strong. Here's the Phillips paraphrase. Your personal convictions are a matter of faith between yourself and God. And you are happy if you have no qualms about what you allow yourself to eat. So, faith here, he says, when to the the strong, do you have faith? Faith here is a conviction in this context to eat whatever you want. And Paul is saying that conviction is between you and God. And you're blessed, you're happy in a sense if you can eat and enjoy your liberty. Without bringing somebody down spiritually by your actions, your weaker brother, or condemning yourself. I'm not quite sure about this. So I put it this way. If I do something which could be a, a stumbling block to another Christian, I shouldn't feel happy about that. I shouldn't feel blessed about that. My conscience should disturb me. But if I'm among other Christians who have the same maturity as I do in matters of faith, then, then I can have a great time eating all the meat I want to eat. Right? That's what Paul's saying. If you if you're if you're among those who have liberty to eat and you're not gonna you're not gonna offend anybody by it, then, then enjoy it. Enjoy your shrimp barbecue. Or whatever it is that you enjoy. Our conscience is a gift from God. It's the faculty by which we apprehend the will of God, which was designed to govern our lives. But it's not perfect, it has to be informed by God's word, or it will lead you astray. It's not perfect. So you, you may feel, I don't know about that. Well, that's a big red flag going up. I, I need to look at the Word of God more carefully about that. So for a mature Christian, a conscience is like a directional sign. Don't do that. Don't go there. Or it could point us to the way that we should go. Two options. Take the better one. Take the better one. But never ignore your conscience because you want what you want. Don't ignore it. It's God-given. There was a man who consulted a doctor and he says, Doc, I've been misbehaving. And he says, And my conscience is troubling me. And the doctor says, You want something that's going to strengthen your willpower? He said, No, actually, I was thinking of something that would weaken my conscience. <laughs> right? Why? Because he wanted to do what he wanted to do. I don't want more willpower. You got something there, a prescription to weaken my conscience so I could feel good about sinning? <laughs> Finally, act according to your faith. Verse 23 If one's actions contradict or violate what they believe, then it's not proceeding from faith and they're, they're sinful for them to do. But he who doubts, verse 23, is condemned if he eats. I'm not sure that I have the liberty to eat this meat. He's doubting. If he eats it, he's bringing self-condemnation to himself because he's not eating from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. So I I phrased it this way. Our actions can be sin, even if they are not sinful in themselves, if in doing them we have violated our conscience, what we believe at that time to be God's will for us. So, by example, suppose I have the conviction that attending a movie theater would be wrong for me. It's going against my conscience. But you persuade me to go with you. Oh, it's a really good movie, you know. And come on, come on, you know how we persuade people. But I don't have the faith to do that. My conscience is not permitting me to do that. But you're pressuring me to do it, and I give in to your pressure. I've sinned against my conscience. Even if the thing may not necessarily be wrong, it was wrong for me to do at that point because my conscience was telling me otherwise. Don't do that. Whatever is not of faith, whatever is not born out of a fully informed conscience is sin. It's sin for you to do it. James 4.17 says, To him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin that's a general principle it had a particular application there in the book of james but as a general rule if you know if you know or believe that this is the right thing for you to do then don't violate your conscience peer pressure young people listen peer pressure If you don't know what that means now, you will know it at some point in time. When you get around uh, children or young people your age, they will start putting pressure on you to follow them. But you've been taught the Word of God, and your conscience is saying, no, no, I shouldn't do that. Don't violate your conscience. It may take time for some weak Christians to develop what I call a mature faith-based conscience. Give them that time. And in the meantime, they must not violate what they sincerely believe is the right thing for them to do. That's what Paul is saying here in this last verse. This is a good chapter, right? Lots of practical truth here. It's kind of one of those chapters you can go, oh, meats and vegetables. That's not my problem for me. So we just skip Romans 14, jump into Romans 15. No, it's there for our instruction. Father, thank you for this word. Help us to apply it to our heart by the power of your Spirit. Help us to develop a really faith-based, informed conscience. In Jesus' name, Amen.